Hey Ben, this might be the sickest episode we've ever done. <laughs> oh man, I hope you're ready to carry the weight here, mate. Oh, carrying weight is my specialty. Oh, man, not only have I been knocked over with COVID this week, I've been, I've been ass fucked by COVID. I've been uh, brain fucked by COVID. <laughs> Front fucked, ass fucked. Yep. It's um, it's a thing. It's a thing. So uh, yeah, this will be an interesting episode, and uh, it'll be two interesting episodes because as uh, we'll let people in on the secret that we're recording next week's show back to back with this week's show, just because of your monster fest commitments. Ah, yeah, it, it might be a struggle. It's gonna be yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think well, it's. I think, I think the reason you've caught it is because uh, of the stress of this double show. Oh it's right, yeah. Down, and uh, you were susceptible to it. Oh my goodness! Well, susceptible, right? We—I mean, we didn't even have you at the desk last week. We don't have you at the desk this week. We're not going to have you at the desk next week. It's uh, all the week after. This is uh, this is quite a lonely time for me. It's uh, yeah, you're in a pen-free <laughs> zone. <laughs> uh, let's introduce the show. <laughs> hey everybody, uh, how's it going? Welcome to another episode of Good Movie Monday. It's the weekly podcast dedicated to nerdy cinematic ramblings. Uh, my name's Glenn Cochran, and the other guy who you just heard from is Ben Helwig. And uh, I, have I asked how you actually are? Uh, no, but that's okay. All right, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> are you good? I'm fine. Excellent. Well, this week we are talking all about folklore movies, mate. Um, and look, that's that's open to interpretation because uh, I don't know, we've kind of done this before with you know urban legends i guess and didn't we do something we did something folk horror a while ago i think probably yeah folk horror like yeah, yeah. i did I, yeah i and i probably i may have even talked about the films that i'm going to talk about <laughs> on that show i didn't go back through the letterbox to, to see <laughs> if i had but uh, i just figure I'm, i'll just yeah if it's one of those tenets of education that if you just repeat, you know, repetition, you get repeating it, repeating it until everyone's like, yes, I've fucking seen it. Wasn't that the whole point of the letterbox to begin with? To begin with, yeah. <laughs> well, the reason we're doing folklore is because we have an interview coming up today with Anthony C. Ferrante, who's the director of a, a new sort of dramatic folklore movie called Nix. Is dramatic the right word for it? I think so. Um, and it's, uh, it's based on a, a classic folklore, but, um, he is also the guy that gave us all six shark NATO movies. So there's no way he's going to escape the conversation without talking a little bit about shark NATO. Uh, are you a fan of shark NATO, Ben? I am a fan of, of shark NATO. You know, every time that you've mentioned, uh, you've mentioned this guy, I've always gone, hang on, are you talking about the guy who hosts the Warner Brothers podcast? The Warner Brother, the Warner Archive podcast? <laughs> and that's that's D.W. Ferranti. Oh, gosh, they've both got initials in the middle. <laughs> I wonder if it's he's like they're related. That's a good question. Although I would find it hilarious that the guy who's talking about, all, you know, the, Sig, the Zigfield Follies and all the, the classic Warner Brothers stuff that they're releasing on uh, DVD and Blu-ray the Warner Archive is the brother of the guy who directed the Sharknado movie. 
I, 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 yeah, I do like the Sharknado movies. I, I think there's a lot of um, a lot of discipline in making movies like that, as shonky as they do seem to be. But um, yeah, look, I'll pick his brain about that a little bit later. But uh, to everybody listening again, thanks for hitting play. We do appreciate your support that you give us each week. Very warm welcome to those of you who are new to the show. We hope that you do become loyal listeners and um, please forgive me this week because I, I, it'll be interesting to see if I can actually last to the end of the episode. Uh, I think they'll love it just because your voice is a couple of octaves lower. And, uh, <laughs> if, you sing, if you break out in some Barry White in the middle of the show, I'm sure they'd be very appreciative. Well, you know, delirium is another thing that is a side effect and I may just bust into a song of some sort. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, if you're looking for everything that we do, because we also do bonus content video and all sorts of stuff, uh, our website is goodmoviemonday.com. It also has links to all of our other social media pages and get on board with our TikTok. It's blowing up. We have a hell of a lot of followers there and um, our videos are just, I don't, I don't understand why they're working so well, Ben, but they are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we need to um just do the show on there. <laughs> <laughs> we should just do them in bite-sized TikTok bits. Yes. That, there, there you go. I, I did that um for, for Fake Shemp, which uh for those that don't know is the website that kind of spawned this show before this show sort of had an identity of its own. I did a micro podcast on there called What the Fuck Was That? And they were only two minutes long. So yeah, right. I was I was ahead of my time, mate. Uh, what the fuck was that? What the fuck was that? It sounds like a great show. It sounds like a show that I would listen to. Yeah, it's a good one. Hey, um, we're available on the Newsly app. That's where we prefer people to listen to us. So get the Newsly app, the super app on your phone, and uh, let the fucking app do all the work for you. Reads the news back to you, mate, in a natural human voice. Just like mum used to do. <laughs> Our friends who contribute to the show, they're coming, they're going to be coming up as well. Uh, we've got movie news from the past week delivered to you by Guillermo Troncoso from Screen Realm. That's a fantastic online website, entertainment website, that is. And we also have our regular segment from the American podcast, Bonehead Weekly, who are Joe Lewis, Chad Jennings, and James Thomas. We've since been on their show, mate. We have. And that show dropped, and as predicted by your good self, gets about one hour in. Starts to drift off. <laughs> we kind of get we kind of get caught up in our own echo, echo chamber there, mate. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I, I I'm I hey. wouldn't I wouldn't want to listen to myself talk for more than an hour. Well, I was about to say I like listening to me. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fun conversation, though. If you if you are if you listen to Boneheads on our show every week, um, go and have a listen to that. It's a two hour conversation. Uh, they pick our brains about our show. We talk about other things, including trauma and a few other. Juicy I mean, I reckon things. it's a great show to fall asleep to. Like yeah. our show, our episode would be great. Like you put it on, and it's just like you know, it's like if you if you like uh, white noise or static, <laughs> then you know. But instead, you've got us just talking about ourselves. Mate, Chad, Chad will be listening to this because of all the boneheads. We know he's a loyal listener, <laughs> so he well, will have well, his yeah. uh, right of uh, reply when he joins us for the Christmas episode. No, but I, you know, I think Chad would agree that uh, yeah, there's there's very few things like you and me talking about ourselves uh, that would make people fall asleep. Like <laughs> the, the guaranteed recipe, and like. You know, as long as as long as they get the listens, they'll be That's fine. True. That is yeah. true. Like uh, my my six year old just just have so much trouble getting him to go to bed, but I 
popped on that Boneheads episode where they talked to the guys from Good Movie Monday and he's out like a lot. <laughs> but then he wakes up in the morning swearing like a sailor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he oh. hates Burt Reynolds for some reason. <laughs> Man, if I was in a better frame of mind, I'd have somewhere to go with that. Oh, I hate <laughs> this fucking, hate this fucking thing. Hey, lastly, um, but uh, best of all, we've got Jarrett Garn from Monster Fest, who is a connoisseur of physical media, and this is a segment he does to tell you what's new on uh, home entertainment this week, what's worth spending your buck on, and uh, for the sake of my throat, we'll throw to him, and I'll uh, be back in a minute. Hey, this is Jarrett, and welcome to PE Class. Huge week for home entertainment this week. And I'm going to start with Universal Sony Pictures Home Entertainment as they've got two recent theatrical releases that are hitting home end. The first of which is Orphan First Kill. That's right, the sequel to Orphan. The sequel that took over a decade to come and was well worth the wait. It's hitting Blu-ray and DVD. Then the second new release from Universal Sony is Beast. It's hitting Blu-ray and DVD. This is that creature feature with Idris Elba, you know, animals gone AWOL type of deal. Then some catalogue titles that are hitting home end from Universal Sony include from the Studio Canal catalogue, Highlander. That's right, Russell Mulcahy's Highlander. It's coming out on 4K and it's coming with Dolby Vision and HDR10 presentations of the film and using the existing DTS HD Master Audio 5.1 track. Now there are new special features on this release. In fact, there are four new featurettes and a brand new audio commentary with author John Melville. As for legacy special features, it only ports two of the previous release special features from prior special edition Blu-ray releases, and that's two audio commentary tracks, one with Mulcahy, and then another with Mulcahy, William Panzer, and Peter Davis. Then another catalogue title that's hitting 4K Ultra HD for the first time is the Eminem movie 8 Mile. Now this one's got a DTS-X audio track and HDR10 presentation of the film. And as for special features, there's nothing new, but it does put all the special features from the previous Blu-ray release. Moving on to Roadshow, they're releasing George Miller's sleeper film 3,000 Years of Longing on Blu-ray and DVD. Then from the Warner catalogue, they're releasing the classic Casablanca just in time for its 80th anniversary. This is its 4K Ultra HD debut and it's got HDR10 presentation and a newly restored mono track for the film. And it's complete with legacy extras from previous releases. Then the last distributor I'll mention that's releasing a title this week on home entertainment is ViaVision. And they're releasing John Landis's The Blues Brothers on 4K Ultra HD. You heard right, ViaVision releasing a universal catalogue title locally on 4K Ultra HD. Of course, Universal did release this title in the US and UK, but for whatever reason, didn't see fit to release it locally, and Biovision stepped in, sub-licensed it, and are releasing it, and they're releasing it just as it was released overseas with the DTS-X audio track and the legacy special features. That's right, no new content, because there was no new content on the international releases, but it does port all the special features from the previous Blu-ray releases, as well as featuring the theatrical and director's cut of the movie. This is great news too, because Biovision have sub-licensed some other 4K titles from other studios, and they'll be releasing them locally. In December, they've got Almost Famous coming out, and I believe tentatively for January, they're releasing from Lionsgate, Reservoir Dogs. Anyway, that's it for me for this week, so until next time, stay physical. How's my tone, Ben? Am I, uh, am I sounding flat? <laughs> no, you're sounding you're super sexy, super oh, uh, gaspy and sexy. 
I was just thinking when I threw to Jarrett just a minute ago, I'm like, geez, I sound really like just monotone and blah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, whatever. <laughs> what are your thoughts on 8 Mile, the Eminem movie? The Eminem movie. I Look, I've got a lot of time for that film. Same. I, the Britney Murphy stuff, I, I, I could have done without really in the movie. Like the, it was just enough. The rap battle stuff is fun. Like all the other stuff is fun. Yeah. But the, the Britney Murphy, <laughs> yeah, you're like, uh, is that necessary? But then it justifies that. I don't know if you remember at the time when 8 Mile came out, uh, I think they played like the MTV Music Awards and he performed the kind of the title song. Yeah. And she was in the crowd dancing and things were popping out left and right. And she was going nuts. There was this, and she was, I mean, she wasn't like on the stage or anything. She was in the crowd with, because at the MTV Movie Awards, they had like the little kind of mosh pity thing. Yeah, yeah. And all the celebrities would be down in there in it. And she was going for it. It was great. You might say she lost herself. Yeah, in the music. Yeah. <laughs> she owned it. You know, I, I mean, I love the film. I think it really holds up well, but I was disappointed at the time when I went to see it theatrically that his music's not actually in the movie. No, not much. No, because it's all about him <laughs> I know. And the music. But you know what I mean? Like, you go to yeah. this, the new Eminem movie, you're like, fuck, I want to hear some bangers, and you don't get much of that. But <laughs> they, should do, they should do 8 Mile 2, but it's <laughs> like, um, like Creed, where he's like the old established star who's lost it a bit. And then, like, some young punk has to come through and that he mentors and then tries to steal all his gigs. Yeah. So then he has to get back into the... It's, back into the... it's the Tom McDonald story. Hilarious. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, thank you to Jarrett. Stellar work there. And um, delivering the goods right as Monster Fest uh, looms and is ready to kick off. Uh, from the benefit For the benefit of our listeners, um, you and Jarrett are both from Monster Fest, which is Australia's what... Would you say premium horror film festival? Uh, premiere. That's how, I, that's how we, like premiere? To, we, we like to call it Australia's premiere genre film festival. Excellent. And I would agree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this, um, this, by the time this episode drops, the festival kicks off in three days time, Ben. Are you ready to rock and roll? Uh, well, in, by three <laughs> days time before the festival, I certainly hope so. <laughs> Otherwise, Otherwise, uh, I'll be like most of the lead up work is the is the the work of other people. The festival <laughs> itself is is a lot of it's my job, and it's like oh shit. Speaking of uh oh shit, can you tell how much I'm sweating here? I can't. No, no. It, it just looks like a highlight. My God, yeah, <laughs> it's rough, man. It's rough. Um, can you hear my fan? I've got a fan on me that's just like blowing my sweat to keep me cool i just thought that was my computer fan oh shit we've probably got fucking interference coming from every direction on this episode there'll just be a nice little hum through the episode yeah it matches my voice all right why don't you kick off the recommendations with your first one all right i'm gonna talk about one of my all-time favorite uh, kids movies hang on isn't every recommendation one of your all-time favorites yeah <laughs> I used to sign off. I used to sign off every single review that I ever wrote on Facebook or, uh, um, what you call it, Letterboxd or anything like that. With this is the greatest movie ever made. <laughs> They're always the greatest movie ever made. But this movie really is the greatest movie ever made. Uh, it's uh, called The Wonderful World of the Brothers Grimm. I remember this, and it's it's a 
it was released by MGM, but it's actually like it's a George Powell movie, mm-hmm. or at least it's it's actually directed by it's directed by this guy Henry Levin, um, who I'm not too familiar with, but George, but it's also basically directed by George Powell who produced it. George Powell was um, kind of more well known for his uh, special effects work and science fiction films and stuff. So he does all of the the miniature work and the animation, the kind of stop motion animation stuff in this film, of which there is a lot. And the basic premise of the movie is that um, oh, what are their names? I can never remember their first names. Um, Wilhelm and Jacob Grimm are two brothers and they're, they're both, they're writers, but they're struggling. They're kind of, they're uh, trying to, trying to make a living writing books, but um, the, what's his name? Wilhelm, Wilhelm uh, played by, by Carl Bohem from the collector of all, is it, no, the hang on, that's the chance stamp. No, the, um, what's the, uh, the weird one where he's, he's perving on all the women, peeping Tom. Peeping Tom, yes. Peeping Tom, he's the peeping Tom guy. Um, he's like the kind of more straight-laced, business-savvy one who's, you know, manages his money and is very kind of straight-laced. He's also single. And Lawrence Harvey is uh, is Jacob Grimm, who's a bit more, like, he's all he's interested in these kind of children's stories. He wants to write books for children's stories. Um, but their publisher, Walter Sleazak, uh, is it Walter Sleazak? <laughs> Uh, yeah, Walter Slezak from uh, uh, yeah, my memory. The the great it's a movie with Rock Hudson and Gina Lola Brigidis, like where they're on um, with Bobby Darren and Sandra D. Um, anyway, Walter Slezak, he's like in a lot of things. He's a great kind of Hungarian actor. Um, he just wants them to publish like these, you know, write you know classic literature and romance books and stuff, and and. Uh, yeah, Carl Bohem is all for it, but Lawrence Harvey doesn't want, wants none of it. But he's also he's married. He's got a bunch of kids. He's constantly broke. He's always spending his money going to visit this old woman, uh, who tells him these kind of local, um, and it's all I think it's all they're all in like Vienna, um, and she just tells him these kind of local uh, folk stories, uh, and including and of course they're all the Brothers Grimm stories that they become famous for. So there's um uh the cobbler the cobbler and the elves there's um tom thumb there's uh um this great one with uh terry thomas terry thomas and buddy hackett where they're where uh, terry thomas is the knight and buddy hackett's his squire and they go in to face the dragon that's you know but terry thomas is actually a coward and yeah. he kind of pushes buddy hackett in and uh buddy hackett manages to defeat the dragon and then Terry Thomas tries to take the credit for it, but it doesn't go. It doesn't go right. There's all, you know, um, and then of course, yeah. And as as the movie goes on, Carboem kind of gets caught up in it, and you know, helps his brother out, and they kind of publish, you know, what they become famous for. But also, um, he ends up with a love interest, uh, played by Barbara Eden, a very young, very attractive Barbara Eden turns up as as Carboem's love interest, and. Uh, I think uh, some of the other who are the, some of the other people Russ Tamblin, Jim Backus. Sorry, Jim Backus is the king. Russ Tamblin is in the uh, I don't remember what the name of the story is, but uh, the Dancing Princess. He basically he gets this cloak of invisibility or or this something, and he can sneak into the castle during the balls where he tries to woo the princess with his uh, dancing. Uh, and Jim Backus is the king. Uh, 
who else? Uh, Yvette Mimo is in it. Mimu? 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 Uh, Balula Bondi, who I don't really... <laughs> I, don't remember, I don't remember who she is in the film. Um, but Rumble Stilskin's in there. Oh, dude. Snow White, and they all... It's it's just such a it's like a real it's like a it's like a Disney yeah like the, the magical world of Disney but it's George Powell's version and it is amazing. Well, I, it's funny you say that because what I was about to say is I'm very much regretting the direction I ended up taking for this episode because now that you've brought that one up, all that came to my mind were those Aesop's Fables that Disney used to put out. Yeah, and well, they I put one thinking... out. They put one out as an anthology movie at one point in time. You had the Grasshopper and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I wish I'd done that. Well, that's uh, what I was going to talk about were, were things like Puss in Boots, like all and, yeah. and with uh Jason Connery and Christopher Walken, and yeah, all I, those um Shelley Duvall presents uh, yeah, Fairytale Theater. One, I, I think because I think Disney put the Aesop's Fables out as a movie or a movie length kind of feature called Aesop's Fables, Fairy Tales, and Other Wonderful Stories. And yeah. it was just the best. I could recite it. If you put it on now, I could probably sing along with it. Uh, but I didn't go in that direction. And for some reason, this is ironic, because at the start of the show, I said, haven't we done this before? And you, you said, no, that was folk, folk horror. And I've chosen two folk horror films. <laughs> I was going to say, no, wait, let me guess. Have you done one of the sexy Cinderella movies? Or no. the sexy Alice in Wonderland movies? I have not. See, full of regret. This episode is yeah. full of regret. <laughs> I almost did... Um, fairy tale a true story do you remember that one with harvey Keitel? yes i do the in new york is it like a new york set one is it oh i from my memory i think Am I thinking was... of fairy tale in new york the song <laughs> my memory <laughs> placed it in london i think and it was very much a like a secret garden little princess type of movie <clears throat> but i didn't do that one instead i went with a 2011 movie called scream of the banshee now this is Pure coincidence because it was actually written, and I only discovered this a few days ago, by Anthony C. Ferranti. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. I mean, I've seen this film before, had no idea he wrote it. Um, and the fact I'm going to be chatting with him in a few minutes, that's kind of weird. But it's directed by another guy we've had on the show, or the old show, that is, Stephen C. Miller, who's um, the guy that directed Silent Night and um, went on to make you a lot of... Yeah, and he went on to make a lot of, you know, director video action fodder like First Kill and Escape Plan 2 and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, anyway, Scream of the Banshee, it's one of those After Dark originals. Uh, if people don't know what After Dark is, it's a, it's a production company, kind of like a low-rent Blumhouse, I guess you could say. It sort of didn't it derive from a film festival or something like that. Um, they distribute a lot of horror films and have these exclusive, and this is one of them. And it's a little bit different to what they normally would do because this is a co-production with them and the Sci-Fi Channel. Um, anyway, the gist of it is it stars Lauren Holly and Lance Henriksen. And... I'm all in. <laughs> I'm all in with that cast. And it's a fairly classic style of monster movie made sort of with those universal monster movies in mind. It's, it's definitely got a lot of... Um, throwbacks to you know creature from the black lagoon and things like that but the irish folklore of the banshee um sort of in this one is that if you hear a banshee scream you're gonna die and so in this movie you have lauren holly as a university professor who opens up an ancient box that she's got as a relic and she unleashes a banshee scream to the classroom and then in a very final destination kind of way the students just begin to die you know indeed one at a time very much like Final Destination, and it's all this curse of the Banshee. 
and so it's a it's a monster movie meets a slasher movie um and lots of other influences in there too like um wishmaster definitely there's a, a and that's another folklore one as well um has a lot of influence here hellraiser a little bit of that in there as well particularly with the whole concept of the box um but i just like this one because it's very atmospheric and stylish and very very low budget and i think um that stephen c miller you know when he has the right material he's a really effective uh director in terms of um atmosphere and aesthetic like he, he puts something really really appealing on the screen i don't think those dtv movies that he's done with the action movies have really you know showcased his talent uh whereas i think some moments in in the, the silent night movie definitely showcase it but this one scream of the banshee is probably i think the best horror film he's done but there you go. I don't have much more to say about it because my voice is really, really on the <laughs> on the edge right now. But there you go. Do you know the After Dark movies? Uh, I remember the I remember the the series coming out. Yeah, there's a uh, whole bunch of like I think there's about nine movies they did as originals. They did release them in a box set, and some really, really good ones in there um, by some fairly established directors as well. But there's a good Scarecrow one in there called Husk and a and a few others. Yeah. Anyway, there you go. Scream of the Banshee, on to Guillermo. What's happening everybody, it's Guillermo here from ScreenRealm.com, here as always to tell you about some of the big movie news stories that occurred over the last week, kicking off with Bradley Cooper starring as Frank Bullitt for Steven Spielberg. As first reported by Deadline, Bradley Cooper has closed the deal to play San Francisco cop Frank Bullitt. As many will of course know, Steve McQueen played the character in the 1968 thriller Bullitt. Now this is apparently not going to be a remake of that original film, but it's going to be a new idea centered on the same character. Cooper is on board to also produce the film along with Steven Spielberg and his producing partner Christy Makosko Krieger. The screenplay will be coming from Oscar winning screenwriter Josh Singer, whose credits include Spotlight, First Man, The Post and The Fifth Estate. Channing Tatum is going to be starring in a spy thriller titled Red Shirt with Deadpool 2, Atomic Bond and Bullet Train director David Leach at the helm. As reported by Deadline, there aren't any details to go on as of yet, although it is expected to be a spin on James Bond. And of course, there's franchise potential. Channing Tatum, who's also coming up in Magic Mike's Last Dance, will also be producing the film. It's expected to be selling to a big studio sometime soon. There's a reboot of Escape from New York on the way, and the 20th Century Studios film will be directed by Radio Silence, which is the name given to the filmmaking team consisting of Matt Bittinelli, Olpen, Tyler Gillett, and Chad Villela. And I'm sure I slaughtered the pronunciation of those names. Radio Silence recently directed the relaunch of the Scream franchise. They've also got the next Scream film coming up, and they directed Ready or Not. The new Escape from New York will have original filmmaker John Carpenter on board as an executive producer. No casting details as yet. Jonah Hill has lined up his next feature film as director and is going to be starring none other than Keanu Reeves. There's not much known about the project, although we do know that it's going to be titled Outcome. Jonah Hill's previous credits as director include the 2018 coming-of-age film Mid-90s and the recently released Netflix documentary Stucks. That about does it for me everyone, as always jump on ScreenRealm.com to check out everything we've got going on there. For those in Australia, you may be interested in entering our giveaway for The Walking Dead World Beyond. We're celebrating Acorn Media's home entertainment release of The Walking Dead spin-off series, which is hitting Blu-ray, DVD and digital on November 23rd with a Blu-ray giveaway, so be sure to check that out. And as always, the site has the latest trailers, release schedules and more. And in case you haven't yet, be sure to hit Screen Realm up on YouTube. Check out our YouTube channel, we've got a lot of content going up. Catch you next week.
Okay, so that's a bit of fun, an odd little song there. That's called Like the Moon by a band called The Adults, and it's actually taken from the recent Candyman reboot, um, which is not a bad movie at all. And Candyman being another good horror example of a, a folklore, although that kind of fabricates its own folklore. It's not really a folklore. It, it makes its own folklore. Uh, all right, but now, speaking of folklores, let's talk about Nyx. It's my chat with Anthony Ciferanti. The folklore of Nyx, as I said at the start of the show, is a dramatic shape-shifting water spirit folklore and uh, this film tries to adapt it into an American setting. It's a very effective uh, little horror film about a family that's torn apart by tragedy and, and loss and grief and um, it, but I'll, I'll let Anthony do all the talking here uh, but what kind of needs to be said about this one is that Nick's and Sharknado are like chocolate and cheese so if you're thinking of this guy as the guy that made Sharknado and that's your expectations going into Nick's you know you need to kind of lose that because even before Sharknado he was making these type of horror films he started off with one called Boo which I think you might remember Ben in the video store days was quite a quite a good little renter yeah definitely yeah um any any video geek I'm sure will attest to that but anyway I'm talking too much here's our chat enjoy it and then uh straight after that will be the boneheads with their own take on folklore movies hey honey looks like it might storm no I think we'll be all right dad Someone's watching us. Hello? What are you doing over there? Well, hey, Anthony. Welcome to Good Movie Monday. It's fantastic to be chatting with you. How are you? You too. I'm doing great. Or you're, I'm assuming right now where you're at, it's, it's the morning, and right now it's the evening for me. Yeah, well, yes, and uh, the time difference is always a, a, a problem when it comes to these things, but I'm so glad we pulled this together. You know, this is great. Let's talk about Nyx. This is a, a curious title. It's It's got a good amount of intrigue. Very cool story. I really enjoyed the hell out of this one. Thank For you. our listeners uh, who don't know about it yet, how would you pitch it to them? How would you describe this film? Well, I, I've, I've always been you know, a horror guy. I love horror. And my, my first few films were, were very horror driven until I went into Sharknado and went completely back crap crazy. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, I'd, I'd been looking for a long time for a horror film that, that we could do that had a little bit more meaning behind it, that a little more depth. And so um, I'd worked with a, a James Lombardi, Skylar Caleb and Woodrow uh, Wilson Hancock III before on a film called Wake Shadow Man. Um, I was a producer on that and helped a little bit uh, polish the script and get it to the finish line for them. And so they came to me with this project and we, um, we started talking about it. And um, at, the, at the time it was a different mythology and, and uh, COVID hit when we were about ready to shoot. And so we kind of tabled it and redeveloped the movie during COVID. And during that time, we, we started realizing that we need to dig deeper. We need to try harder to find a way to, to make something that, that resonated a little bit more because there was a lot going on. And, um, you know, we, we talked a lot about stuff that's happened in our families and, you know, we, we've watched people, you know, deal with grief and addiction and stuff. And it's like, well, what, what if we did something that, uh, that people aren't expecting? And so I, I did a little research, dug, dug around trying to find a really good mythology. And um, I came across uh, the, the Knicks or the Knockin. Uh, uh, which is, uh, or Nixie, which is kind of a German folklore, which is half face and water. And I just was haunted by that image and I became fascinated by it. Now, the mythology of the Nix, you know, beyond that, it's a water fairy. So it's not that interesting beyond just that first initial uh, look. Uh, but the other thing that intrigued me is that Nix in German means nothing. So, you know, there's something about 
about you know how we dismiss monsters and dismiss uh, things that we don't quite understand. And so we we worked hard on this this, this story and came up with this movie about a, a family that a horrible tragedy happens with this young girl uh, when everybody when uh, this the family is uh, three siblings and one of them uh, something happens to her and the other two. Um, grow up and are completely messed up because of it, including the mom who refuses to believe that the little girl is dead. And so it, it's about generational horror. It's about the, uh, the things that we carry with us. And it's also about this creature that's there, always kind of looking over your shoulder and kind of is going to pounce and kind of destroy you in the process. Um, I, I feel like uh, Nix's kind of a uh, there, there's a kind of a trilogy of films going on in my 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 my, my filmography the, my first film boo uh, there's a thriller i did called forgotten evil and now nicks to kind of deal with the mindscape a little bit and i think i kind of perfected it with this movie in particular because it definitely takes you on a, a mind journey um i've described it as uh ordinary people meets videodrome <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah so you know, so, so it has a little bit of both. It's but at its core, it's it is a it is a family uh, indie family drama with horrific elements to it, and uh, it takes you on a ride. And it, and it has a very slow burn, which um, you know, originally since we were going to go with the practical creature throughout the film, you know, I was going, oh, this probably end up kind of feeling a little more eighties when all is said and done. Not not really specifically going for eighties, but just because we're not doing CG creature, we're doing something that's practical. But when it was over, kind of really what we were able to achieve in shooting in my hometown in Antioch with the Lynn House, which is the house that the, the Coyle family is at, and, and a lot of the other ambience, the movie has a very 70s feel because it's, it's not just the people that are haunted, it's the places they dwell in. And a lot of movies in the 70s kind of dealt with that. Uh, I watched The Exorcist again with my daughter um, you know, right before we were finished uh, posting on Nick's and I'm going, oh, wow. There's a lot of interesting things in The Exorcist, and I hadn't seen it in a long time. And we all remember the possession stuff, but we forget about the stuff that leads up to it and that sense of ominous dread in that house. And the house is a character in the film just as much as the, the devil and the possession and all that. And, uh, and so, so it, you know, I'm not saying our film's The Exorcist, but it's that, that vibe and that slow burn and creating um, characters out of places and things I think really aids in the, in, the, in the journey of the film. It's a very unique movie and I'm really proud of it. And since it was a true indie, uh, you know, we didn't really have, we knew as long as we delivered on the title, we had a creature, we had horror in it, you know, people were gonna be attracted to it. So that allowed us as an indie film to kind of take chances and big swings, which Jay and Skyler and Woodrow and I all talked about. But look, we, we know the movie has an audience, but let's mm. let's take the audience on a bigger journey and one that something that maybe means something to us and then has a little more depth. Yeah, see, perfectly said. That, that's why I ask <laughs> the talents to explain their films because you can never say it better yourself. And the thing is, like you mentioned Boo, which I'm really glad you mentioned, and you also mentioned Sharknado, and this is important for me because I think um, people should know you are the legend that gave us all of the Sharknado <laughs> movies, and, and for that we thank you for sure. Thank but you Nick's, very Nick's, much. Nick's is a very different film, and it's a real sort of for me, it felt like a callback to Boo. And to hear you say this is part of a sort of a, a, a trilogy of sorts, that's exciting for me. And um, I, I need to go back and watch these in that context. Well, well yeah. And, and it's, uh, you know, again, they're, 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 it's loosely, you know, loosely connected. I mean, I, yeah. like I, I would say in the same way that Videodrome and Existence and Crimes of the Future from Cronenberg yeah. all kind of exist in a similar palette. Like a thematic um, trilogy. The, 
thematic thematic trilogy but the, but um you know what because we ended up shooting in my hometown at a movie theater that i also shot my first film at that had me doing a cameo watching a film i did when i was growing up in that town the movie kind of took on sort of more of a personal thing because we were originally going to shoot in the los angeles where i live now and um and when we shot there it just there was just these added layers uh it's actually jay i think that added initially that uh the, that the character would have a, a video camera and then as we developed it the camera became more part of it so it wasn't a conscious decision to to add that filmmaking element to it but um but again it kind of took on that feel and then there's even some easter eggs uh we, you know the in the theater uh, the projectionist is uh, is played by Dig Wayne, who played the uh, cop uh, Arlo Ray Baines in um, my first movie, Boo. And so, and then there's a Boo poster in there. And on top of it, uh, because the filmography of the character, you know, he was a black black exploitation star that became a cop and sucked at it. I one of the titles of the Dynamite Jones movies on the marquee. So there's these little <laughs> things that are that are there. But but going back to your thing, yes, this is not Sharknado. And there was a lot of discussion. And do do you promote this as the director of Sharknado? And I'm going, of course, you promote the thing that that I'm known for. But if you see the trailer, you clearly know this is not Sharknado. Just like with John Landis when he did Animal House, and then he went and did American World from London. Granted, yeah. that movie was funny as well as scary, they promoted it as uh, from the director of Animal House, a different type of animal. And that's what we were trying to go for in this. So you don't want to hide from it. Otherwise you just, oh, what is Nick's? Oh, it's just another horror movie. And love it or hate it, you know, people people are going to make fun of the fact, oh, the director Sharknado, but you know, we made a global franchise. And and I think that this just is just another uh, different thing in, in the resume and arsenal. And I think people forget that I did start off in horror. So I, I like the fact that Nick's is, you know, has that that water water texture to it, but it's it's nothing that anybody yeah. would ever expect. Well, it's I, a it's a very dark foreboding movie with very I think probably if there's any humor in it, it's it's probably that release in the horror as opposed to hey hey we're trying to make a joke. Yeah, for sure. And I'm, I'm I promise you I'm going to move on from it after this question, but I, I have a special um, admiration for filmmakers that have risen up through the ranks of the asylum. I think there's a discipline uh, working in that sort of model and that company that the average moviegoer probably doesn't understand or comprehend. What skills did you take from working with them to uh, to this? Well, I think I think there's there's the skills that I had before I, I came to the asylum, which you know was on Boo and Horseman and uh, and, and all the other stuff that I did prior to that. And then when you get into the asylum, what what, what I really like about that company is it is it is the old Corman uh, 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 approach where. I'd worked with other companies developing things where they were afraid to take their budget and be ambitious. So they're going, oh, we can't afford to do that. So just, let's just put it on a bicycle. And then when you get to the asylum, it's like, make it on a space shuttle. Uh, you know, you still, you got X amount of days and X amount of money, but if you can make it happen, then go for it. And I think that's what you kind of saw in the first Sharknado where um, I was given, you know, more two toys, which I call it, you know, like, hey, I got a crane, I got this, I got more yeah. tools. And so I put everything into that movie because I didn't, you know, I, I'd never had had those kind of things on a movie before. And so they give you those opportunities and that toolkit to be able to push it to the limit and be resourceful. And especially on Sharknados, we had to think in the moment because those movies were $200 million movies that we were doing for, you know, uh, you know, probably two or three million dollars tops. Um, and they were they were hard to put together. Yet we filmed in in uh, all across the globe on Sharknado uh, Five. We filmed at the Kennedy Space Center um, on Number Four in New York in the second movie. 
um, it was it was pretty crazy the stuff that we managed to pull off on those films, and that was because we um, we were resourceful. We were saying this is what you have. How do you make it bigger? And so when it came to Nix, which was you know a completely independent movie, it was that same aesthetic of all right, well, if we shoot in LA, we're going to have to have less days. And we're not, we're, you know, it was going to be, it was during middle COVID. So being able to shoot at someone's house was not on the table. But then we found in Antioch, um, I had open arms and a, a community that was going to allow me to, to, to film at all these different places, including the house. There is actually an art gallery called the Lynn Gallery. And that was an open during COVID. So we were able to bring in our own furniture and dress it and do some of the artwork and make it um, our house. And that's that's how we were able to be resourceful. You know, I was able to shoot at my high school that I shot at, that I filmed another movie at. Um, but in the script, we didn't. The script was written very. When you do indie, you try to keep the locations very non-specific because you don't you don't want to get too too attached to it. So once we started seeing what we could get, oh, we have a high school. So now instead of her working at this place, she now works at a at a high school. And instead of him working here, he works at a theater. Uh, we were sh we knew we needed the forest, and we found a place in Reading called Shingletown, which is about three hours away from where we were shooting in Antioch. And we ended up uh, there. Um, it was the last four days of shooting, or five, I think four last four days of shooting. And uh, the night before uh, we started shooting, it snowed. We woke up to like three inches of snow in Northern California in February, which usually does not happen. So I think everybody else not accustomed to weather shifts like we had on Sharknado. Yeah. Um, we just kind of embraced it. I go, look, it's now part of the movie. Let's take the next three or four hours to regroup and figure out where we're going to start. And now snow is part of the movie. And I, I think that, you know, the movie gods kind of really shined on us as much as that was um, difficult to film in, in those conditions when we weren't prepared for it and didn't have, you know, you know coats and gear and all that stuff it gave the movie this sort of ethereal vibe to it that you, you could have only, you know, if I wrote snow in there, it would have been like, you know, sunny days for five days. Okay. So I'm, I'm really proud of it. It gave us this even light. And, um, you know, one of the, one of the rules you're told with creatures and, you know, I have that background with makeup effects is never show your creature in broad daylight. And we broke that rule. Yep. And because of the even light in the snow, I mean, my favorite shot of the Knicks is the one where he's on the stump and we do that little slow push in because he just sort of blends into the environment and it just, it's creepy and eerie and makes it all the more terrifying. Absolutely. I think a lot of, uh, a lot of gratitude is owed to, um, to Dee Wallace. I think, is this the second film you've made with her? Uh, third. It's the third, third film. She was in Boo. She was in Hansel and Gretel. And, yes. and when I, when we were rewriting this, um, in my head it was d honestly the entire time i i wasn't you know i didn't know if i was going to be able to get her because usually when i bring her in it's for a couple of days so it's like this is this is a big commitment and i called her up i sent her the script and i go you're the only one and she read it and it connected with her and she, and she we worked it out she came up and did it and she wanted she wanted to do the movie without a lot of makeup she really went to dark places um, that scene in the upstairs uh, toward the end of the movie, she wanted to kind of push things even darker. And, I'm, and I was like, initially going, are you sure you want to do that? You're like, yeah. And I'm like, I'm trusting you. Let's go for it. Let's, let's push this. Yeah. Let's make it dark. And, and so, um, so I, like I said, I, I think that there's, there's, there's echoes of things that maybe we've seen in the past in other movies, but ultimately it's its own little journey. Um, I'm not sure how much, how, how you felt about it, but uh 
you know, I, I do feel like it's it's a movie where when you watch a lot of genre movies and there's some really great movies, I'm not disparaging mm -hmm. anything, but the, but for the most part, a, a good majority of genre movies, you start to see where it's starting and you go, OK, I know where that's going, you know, and you have a pretty good idea, especially if you love horror movies. Uh, when we were kind of having our premiere and I was kind of watching the movie for the first time without having to look at, oh, is there a pixel here? Oh, there's a sound effect that's wrong. You know, you're, you're looking at it for everything that's wrong with it. You're not just watching it. So just kind of watching it through, I realized, wow, if, if, if you've never, uh, if, you, if you don't know what's going to happen, if you haven't read about it, you do not know where this movie is going. It starts off and you go, I know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And it's like, huh? wait, wait, what's this? What is it? What is it doing? And it intrigues you. And so it, it rewards you for sticking around. And there's a lot of seating there. So on second viewings, if people really like it and watch it again, they're, they're going to catch a, a whole bunch of things. I mean, the mm -hmm. movie, the movie has a mission from the beginning and it sticks to the landing, but you don't know it until you kind of really, really put all the pieces together. Definitely agree. It's a very unsuspecting film, and I feel like each of the acts, particularly the third, but also the second, have an element of surprise in there that, um, you, like you said, you think you know where it's going, and it definitely pulls the rug from underneath you, and it, it kind of makes you out to be the madman. Like, you know, can we trust this director? Where the hell's he taking us? And and I, I definitely <laughs> thought that Dee Wallace's performance, she really digs deep into this one, and I think maybe that also, what you were saying earlier about having a 70s kind of feel to it, I think she has a lot to do with that as well. Like it was a real classic performance. The the other thing too that that I'm I really am glad it worked out this way. I mean, we knew it at the script stage and we knew when we were filming it, but to see it actually happen in, in when it's all together is a movie is strangely emotional for a horror movie in a in like a it tugs at you. There's there are moments that are surprising and Again, a lot of a lot of horror movies want to go for that visceral, like you know, every character is is messed up and and horrible. But there's there's heart to this movie, even though horrible things happen. And I think that the the biggest hat trick that we pulled off is we 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 created a movie where you have empathy for characters that are just really messed up, as opposed yeah. to oh, let's see them die. I mean, usually that's the the go to. Um, and and I I mean go back to to you know the the movies of the late 70s and 80s in friday the 13th the first two or three friday the 13th movies you really liked all those characters they were very uh empty characters but there was something about the performances and you just you didn't want to see them die and i think in here you want to see these characters not go through this because you really like them and you don't want to see them go through this pain and that that's another thing that i again i'm, I'm really proud of that we were able to bring that emotional depth and that that's a testament to the to the actors themselves as well because it's this is a very tricky film and a very tricky dance without tipping the hat to what's really happening yeah there's very much that whole william friedkin element of uh, drama first horror second that's always how we describe the exorcist thank you so much for taking the time you're very welcome it's great having you on it's great talking about the film good luck with it and good luck with these uh, upcoming butch cassidy movies can't wait to get stuck into those <laughs> Yeah, they're going to be fantastic. They're really going to be cool. Thank you so much. Welcome to Bonehead Weekly Fun Size. And this week, we're talking about movies with folklore, folklore films. Now, the problem is, is this is actually a little bit of a pain in my butt. Why? There's just not a ton of folklore movies I like when I was Googling the folklore. There's a few. And Seriously? Some really popular. Yeah, there's not a ton. 
And then there's one I want to save for an episode that we're going to do later on. So, oh, I hope it's not the one I was saving it for. Well, it may be, but I okay. do like it quite a bit. I'm going to do 1984 Joe Dante's Gremlins because you really don't think of it. What? It is, isn't it? I did it just it, it just yeah, dawned yeah. on me. If you Google for folklore, so the history of Gremlins is, and we're not going to get into this too much, but the history of an actual Gremlin is from World War II. Correct, gentlemen. Yeah. Yes. And they had Gremlin, you know, there'd be Gremlins in the plane and whatnot. And there was cartoons about this. There's a great Warner Brothers cartoon with Bugs Bunny and a little Gremlin. However, and, and Disney famously had his Gremlins that they tried to bring back a few years ago, but it never cut on. But yes. Yeah. However, Chris Columbus, who gave us, uh, who's the director of Home Alone, wrote this screenplay called Gremlins, which, whoa, that was something weird that just came out. So, which actually dealt with the Mogwai not being so nice. Gizmo is kind of the bad guy. And then Spielberg changed it around. But it's a great film. It's a fantastic Christmas movie. It's also folklore. I think most of you have seen the Zach Galligan Gremlins. Uh, mine, the one I'm going to go for is it, it's actually a play on scottish folklore uh undine <clears throat> sorry undine uh directed by neil jordan directed and written by neil jordan of uh, neil jordan is yeah of, of uh crying game fame um it stars colin farrell which man he's becoming one of my he is one of my favorite actors colin farrell can do no wrong well he he can he has but if he puts his if he puts all of his work into a movie, it's amazing. And this I is one of those one word for you, buddy. And it's a comp it's a combination word. It's one of those compound bullseye. I liked it. That's the only part about Daredevil I liked. I only like the scene with Kevin Smith. Go. Yeah. So, um, but uh, Ondine, Ondine, uh, man, I'm gonna butcher. Anyway, it's about it's basically a, a play on the Scottish folklore of a selkie, uh, which is a seal who can transform into a woman um after it sheds its skin and uh basically they kind of trap they're they're notoriously they trap men or children and drag them to the bottom of the of the river and eat them um but this one actually is a little different uh they fall uh him her and colin farrell fall in love um it's a really great love story and it's it's a it's a great it's told very well it's one of neil jordan's less talked about films i highly recommend it james what do you got yeah, I'm going to go old school, and I mean really old school, because it's folklore that doesn't get brought up in a lot of movies. And actually, the adaptation that this old school movie did still doesn't follow the tradition exactly. But I'm going to talk about the 19 silent film, The Gollum. Jewish folklore. Good one. And if you've never seen it, it's partially lost. So you'll nobody that I know has seen all of it. But it's basically about a a rabbi using this effectively for the sake of quickness this frankenstein made out of clay that it, he can issue commands to through writing it and putting it in its mouth and it will and of course eventually things start to get corrupted bad things start to happen but i think it's really interesting i think that's one of the um and the joy of this topic uh whoever picked this thanks is that folklore is so global and and i was actually sitting here going what's the difference between folklore and mythology right because i can't bring up you know we could do clash of the titans but that's more mythology so but folklore i think jewish folklore doesn't get a lot of play in a in a lot of people's uh lives so if you've never seen it it's from 1915 partially lost but the golem is a really interesting film and that has been Bonehead Weekly Fun Size. Dun, dun, dun. 
boneheads, ladies and gentlemen. As I said earlier, Ben and I were guests on their show. Go back and have a listen to that. Uh, have you actually watched it yet, Ben? God, no, I could never watch it. Because <laughs> it is I on YouTube for, for your eyeballs to behold. <laughs> no, I never want to watch my stuff. That's even worse. Yeah, I, I do. I'm you a bit of a, bit of a, in- bit of a narcissist there, mate. I just sort of yeah. had to do it. <laughs> Yeah, it's a good-looking episode. <laughs> <laughs> at least one of the five. At least one of the five on the screen. <laughs> right. Go and uh, go and give that a listen, everybody. Um, <laughs> it's a pretty much um, you get Ben and I from a different perspective on that episode, and it's heaps of fun. And the whole damn thing, as I said, is available on YouTube. But otherwise, wherever you are listening to us from right now, Bonehead is there too, which of course must be the Newsly app, surely. <laughs> So I'm gonna I'm gonna do my next recommendation uh, before anything else, Ben. So again, another horror movie. This one's called Thale from 2012. It's a really fucking weird Norwegian movie. Do you remember it? Because it had a very weird DVD sort of or VHS cover at the time. Uh I remember like this is when was this from? 2012. So it would have been DVD. DVD, yeah, because um, we we wanted it for Monster Fest. I remember. We wanted it for Monster Fest and Myth kind of last minute they had some other films drop out or something and they swooped in and took it. Oh, typical. I think I think that's Thale. Or maybe I'm thinking of maybe I'm thinking of the lure, the other the mermaid movie. No, that's right. Thale had the, the girl with the tail. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe we had that option to play that at Monster Fest and didn't. Yeah. Well, I mean- so you've just set up you set up a very weird scenario there because this movie is very batshit crazy. It's a very hard movie to describe without sounding ridiculous. But um, I assure people it is fantastic. Uh, in fact, in, in watching it in preparation for this show, I realized how similar a lot of it is in tone to Barbarian, which we've talked about a lot in the last few weeks. But the story is about uh, two crime scene cleaners and they, they rock up to a job only discover there's a woman trapped in the basement, but she's actually not a woman. She's a hulder, which is which is a um a forest creature. She's essentially a woman with a cow's tail. <laughs> of all the tails, the one you want is the cow's tail, whose only purpose is to swipe flies away from its ass. It doesn't help it balance like a dog's tail or a kangaroo. Help it fly like a bird's tail or bounce like a kangaroo's tail. It just literally swats flies away from its asshole, and it's covered in shit. <laughs> it's covered in shit. Yeah. But this, uh, this uh, woman slash holder, she's held captive and she's tortured. And these crime scene cleaners find a videotape in the basement, and they play it only to discover that this creature has been part of some weird medical experiment. And it just keeps getting crazier. And already that sounds very much like Barbarian. Um, and it's the, it's the type of, like Barbarian, it's the type of thing I don't want to spoil too much because it does have secrets. But let me just say that other forest creatures come into it. And we're, we're talking satyrs and things like that. <laughs> Look at my hooves. Look at my hooves. Clippity-clop. Clippity-clop. <laughs> and it's just okay, the weirdest Mr. Tumblers, Mr. Tumblers turns up. Yeah. Fucking get back in the wardrobe, you cunt. It's such a fucking weird movie. And it's a it's a story of rescue and release after that. And it was only made on a budget of like ten thousand dollars, which is a pretty brilliant example of how to make use of every single buck. Effective productions on all that kind of stuff, but just gotta be weird and interesting as as I think what it is, you know? Be clever, yeah. weird and interesting, and you don't need a lot of money. 
So there it is. It's a, it's a Norwegian movie, surreal but mesmerizing. And let's throw it to view Lorium and then we can come back with your final recommendation. Sweet. Good Movie Monday is made possible with the support of people like Eulorium. Eulorium is a streaming platform for rare and obscure movies, and it's absolutely free. They also have a catalogue full of kids' flicks, classic movies, foreign cinema, and more. Visit Eulorium.com today to see what it's all about. All right, we've hit the home stretch, Ben. Thank God for that. Uh, one more recommendation from you to go. Yes, um, I am going to talk about, I think, a movie that I mentioned quite often on the show. Uh, and this is a perfect uh, theme to talk about it, even though it's kind of not really. <laughs> uh, it is Ruggiero Diodato's Raiders of Atlantis. Oh, my goodness. And yes, Atlantis is in the title, and Atlantis <laughs> does come into it. But for the most part, they're really just on the coast of kind of Miami. Is this those weird nymphy women? No. What's that uh, one? I think that's uh, the Jim Wynorski one where they, it's like no. the Mortal Kombat, but it's with busty women instead. No, I th I, I'm having such deja vu right now. I think you have recommended this and I have made that assumption at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> but go for it. Uh, no, Raiders and Landis, it basically, there's there's two kind of groups of people in this film. There's Christopher Connolly, uh, and he's there with uh, with the black guy that he calls Wash. <laughs> I think his name is Washington, but he insists that his name is actually now Muhammad because he's found Islam. And uh, but Christopher Christopher Connolly just can't get that through his head. <laughs> but it, the movie starts with them breaking into a um, into like a wealthy mafia guy's house killing him and stealing something that uh, some other mafia boss wants. And with the payment they get, they're going to go to uh, Trinidad and have one long party until the money runs out. And while <laughs> they're on the way, simultaneously to them doing that, a um, much, much like Jurassic Park, there's a, a scientist, a, a, a she's an expert in uh, dead languages. I think her name, I think it's Mari Field is her name. She's kind of brought in by the government. They don't tell her, they don't tell her what they want, but they bring her in to this, uh, um, it's like a, looks like an oil rig platform in the middle of the kind of ocean, which just off the coast of Florida somewhere. But when <laughs> you go down, it's actually a secret government laboratory where they've, they've got a sub uh, at the bottom of the ocean that's kind of dug up these artifacts that are like 20 million years old and they need her to translate them. And as it turns out, they kind of reference the lost city of Atlantis. And somehow when that happens, when she translates that it, and they try and bring the sub up, it triggers uh, this thing and all the power goes out and uh, this dome kind of rises from the ocean, kind of. And then there's this, there's a blast and then all of a sudden they end up it crashes everything but luckily uh uh Christopher Connolly and 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 Wash are kind of um are in their boat on their way to Trinidad and they happen past and they rescue the sign the 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 scientists the couple of scientists that are still alive and they sail into the port of Miami into the, into Miami 
But since this thing has gone up, this some guy who he there's a brief cut to him at the beginning of the film, and he's like in a suit in a like a kind of a office, a fancy pants office, and um, he takes this mask out of a safe, and it's like a see through. It looks like the head on one of the Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. It's like a Crystal <laughs> Skull head yeah. mask, but it's kind of see through, so you can still kind of see his face through it. And him and like this group of 80s punks are like literally killing everyone on in this in Miami or in this town. They're just they've they've they're like raiders and they're they're shooting them with crossbows and shooting them down with guns and everyone's dead and being crucified or you know uh posed in really kind of grotesque ways. And so then it's basically Christopher Connolly and his band of survivors has to try and survive these people who claim to be from Atlantis or like they've been imbued with the, I don't know, with the spirit of people from Atlantis. <laughs> they decide to take the fight to Atlantis, to this dome that's risen up from the ocean. And it's just kind of, it's nuts. It's got this amazing soundtrack. It's pure 80s kind of action violence and a, with a little bit of sleaze thrown in for good measure. Uh, there's lots of, you know, there's lots of uh, gruesome deaths and awesome action se- uh, set pieces and stuff. It's just, it's such a lot of fun. And it's it's only just it's just come out in uh, I think Severn released it in the US. Uh, I want to say earlier this year. Yeah, for the for the world exclusive of the Blu-ray. Prior to that, I had to watch it on on VHS, and the VHS was incredibly hard to get. Yeah, I do recall the um the the poster art was always amazing as a kid. Like it's very sort of Terminator ish. Yeah, look at that. That's uh, yeah. been holding it up to me, people. It's a visual thing. Funnily enough, I was going to talk about it when we did post-apocalyptic films. Right. It does feature in, like, the book. Like, I've got this book all about post-apocalyptic films, and it does feature in there. But I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. And then, you know <laughs> this one, this one, like, it's, it makes a really, actually makes a really interesting companion piece to that Disney Atlantis movie. Oh, I love yeah, that. One. Yeah, the one with Giovanni, yeah. mate. Is Jim Barney? Does he do a void? No. Yeah, he plays the cook. No shit. I thought he was yeah. dead by then. But yeah, no, it was his. It was his last film. Yeah, right. But that's a, th- those two. Like, if you want to do a double feature, watch uh, that Atlantis, which I always thought was a ripoff of Stargate. It's just yeah, yeah. under the water of, instead of space. Like the character, the main character is is the James Spader character from from uh, Stargate. But uh, Raiders of Atlantis and and that Atlantis and uh, it, they're a lot of fun. Hey, Atlantis might be where the next Indiana Jones goes. We never know. Well, there's the. Do you remember the computer game, Indiana yeah. Jones uh, and the Fate of Atlantis? I just like think if if Indiana Jones is going to do it, if they're going to do an installment movie wise that goes to Atlantis, we've got to wait for the sort of the reboot franchise where you got a younger Indy because you can't you can't picture an eighty plus year old Indiana Jones underwater, you know, looking for Atlantis. <laughs> yeah, no, they should. Do it. Hopefully, they do. Rather than Atlantis, they could send him to Vietnam or something. He yeah. could search for treasure in Vietnam. I'm surprised he never came down under. Yeah. Why not? Like yeah. Quigley did. He could hang out with Quigley. And Quigley was the original Indiana Jones. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect synergy. Except Quigley ended up taking the high road to China and it was all, you know, forget yeah. about it. <laughs> then he just went to Hawaii and hung out there for the rest of the time. <laughs> Dude, we're at the end of the show. Thank fuck for that. Made it. Just made it. But, um... Thank you to everybody for listening and putting up with uh, this thing I've got going. 
Oh, dude, that actually took it out of me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've only got one more to do. Yeah, I know, I know. Hey, massive thanks to Anthony C. Franti. That was a fantastic chat. Check out Nick's. It's available on DVD. But, um, you know, here's a discreet little competition for you. Be the first person right now to email us at our contact page on goodmoviemonday.com and we'll send you a free copy. So I only need to say it once. And if you didn't hear me, go back and listen again. <laughs> make sure you put make sure you put Nick's in the comment. Thanks to our friends at Eagle Entertainment who um helped make that interview possible. Gratitude also to Jarrett, Guillermo, Joe, Chad, and James. Also thanks to Chloe who co-hosts the late night with me every Wednesday night at 10:30 on YouTube and Facebook. And uh make sure to uh follow us on socials as always, doing the plugs there, Ben. Good luck with Monster Fest, mate. Thank you very much. I am packing myself. I mean, we're ready to go. Everything's fine. No, nothing, nothing to worry about here. A lot of work always leads to a banger fest, so I'm sure it'll be fine. Thank you to everybody for listening. Um, <laughs> it's been a pleasure. It's been a chore, uh, as one of our, uh, our former hosts used to say. Always a pleasure, never a chore. But I can tell you, it's been a chore for me. Leaving you with the song called Head Over Heels by Big Bang, and it's from the Troll Hunter soundtrack. And that's a that's a great movie. I love Troll Hunter. Have a great week, everybody. We'll see you next time. And um onto the onto the medicine. Where is that? <laughs> <laughs> and it's oh, fireball would go down very well right now. It's a gin, you need gin. Yeah. Traveling, going to places Just to see wide open spaces Head over heels to try to be wise man They're telling you, come on closer But you're not the one who chose her You're head over heels, trying to be true Yeah!